Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We uh, want to um, continue our conversation in the book of Ephesians uh, in their, kind of this, this rubric, this title of artisan faith, this crafted faith which we have received. God is the one who, who is at work in us to bring to completion what he has started. Uh, and Paul has, uh, for his friends in Ephesus, been outlining uh, kind of first half a theology of mission, a theology of God's care, a, a theology and really theory of how God is operational in the world, who you are and what you're here for and that kind of thing. And then in the back half of the letter, as we've mentioned before, he turns uh, brutally practical in suggesting this theory is, is not something we ought to put on a shelf and, revi- and visit every once in a while, but in fact, it, it needs to get its, its hands dirty. It needs to get its, its feet on the ground of how life actually works in relationships and friendships and marriage and employment and so on and so forth. 
and um, it's important that we get this, not so that we, because God is counting on us. Uh, it's hard to use that language, but it's true to partner with him in saving Long Beach. That's why we're doing this study. Um, he won't do it by himself. Your plan A, and there is no plan B. So if Long Beach is to be saved, and that's what the will of the Father is, then the question is, how do we become the kinds of people he can trust to partner with him in that endeavor, right? Because as you, if you, if you study, um, I was working on this the, the, this past week, and it occurred to me that the church at Ephesus, to whom Paul is writing this letter, doesn't exist anymore. A building, no church. Um, why? Well, I think you know the answer to that, and it's not persecution. Persecution has the odd effect of strengthening a church and increasing the vibrancy of its mission and message in the world. We see this all over the world. The places, you guessed it, where the church is growing fastest and strongest and most vibrantly without denominational barriers is in places where the church is getting brutalized on a regular basis. The places where the church is failing and falling, where the church is accommodating itself to culture, where the church is losing the uniqueness of its voice with a go-along-to-get-along kind or get-along-to-go-along kind of a philosophy, that's what happened to the church at Ephesus. And that is, frankly, what's happening in many cases in the church in North America. Uh, so, so Paul kind of wraps up this letter with this reminder that we look at, and Darren is going to uh, start to build on the texts that we'll look at this morning over the next little while in a short series uh, on, on basically on spiritual warfare. Let's not forget who we are, whose we are, why we're here, because it's really, really easy to get distracted by the material world in which we live. Can I get a witness? And to think that that's where the problem lies. If we just get our guy elected, if we just get our representative in place, if we just get our system to replace whatever the failed system is, we will discover fairly quickly Christians are no better in political power than non-Christians are. We use that power in the same damaging and destructive ways that the people we wanted removed did as the occasion of us rising up. We're not good at it because we don't follow a savior who made acquiring higher position his strategy. We follow a savior who made dissent his strategy who made dissent his strategy, who chose to serve as a way to lead. So it's no surprising when Paul wraps up this letter, as he does here in these verses, that he reminds us of what this is really all about. And that's what we want to look at today as a kind of foundation for some of the things over the next few weeks. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 10 and following. 
uh, where Paul says, finally, um, uh, there, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fit, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take then this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Um, and this is bracketed before and after with the challenge to pray, and so that's going to be a fundamental as we go forward, but we want to focus at this kind of, the, the kind of the core of the sandwich of prayer uh, that Paul lays down. The, the top and the bottom of this whole enterprise are that we become people of prayer, that we recognize that prayer is not a last resort. Prayer is the first thing we do. It's the most powerful thing that we do. Uh, if, if, if prayer becomes an, an afterthought, we've already lost the battle, right? Um, so as, as he starts here, he says, first of all, uh, be, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The times that we are in, the times that the church was in here, uh, call for uh, valor. They call for strength. They call for courage. Uh, it's a time in which the church was uh, afraid because of the persecution that was increasing. We find it in our own culture uh, where, where the, the so-called culture wars are all, in my view, all but over. And uh, because we have chosen a false strategy, I'm going to just go out on a limb here and suggest that the reason that we are starting to lose place in the world, we can no longer use the word Christian to describe ourselves it has been co-opted. As of the last election, we can no longer use the word evangelical to describe ourselves. That word has gone away. So we have to figure, and, and the reason is, is because we have attached our wagon to the wrong horse uh, in terms of affecting change in the culture. And Paul says, look, be strong. The season you're in, the world you're in, the climate you're in requires strength. It requires courage. It's, it, it, he's reminiscing here, if you will, from Joshua's charge in Joshua 1.8, where the angel of the Lord comes to him, where the Lord comes to Joshua and says, be strong, be of good courage. That's the same language here. That is what is required. Don't Run afraid. Don't run terrified by what is happening in the world around you. Don't, don't hunker down under your bed with your blanket pulled up over your head, praying and waiting for Jesus to come back. That is not very helpful when it's the world that Jesus loves that he's sending you into. He will not be pleased if the way you have chosen to, to prepare for his return is by disappearing from the world that he loves so much. He wants us to be engaged. That's why strength has been 
uh, called for. But it's not strengthen your own ability, your own strategy, your own capacity. It's strengthen the Lord and in the power of his might. He's already sending a message here that invites us into a new reality. It is this, uh, you, you remember the story of David and Goliath and the, and the challenge, of course, uh, as this, as this um, in ill-equipped or theoretically ill-equipped shepherd boy went on to take on the monster, the, 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 the um, foe on the other side, and the first strategy was to put on the armor belonging to King Saul. That's the image that he's here. No, you don't put on armor that's not appropriate for this fight. The reason David rejected Saul's armor was not because it didn't fit, but because it would hamper him in the, the strategy that God had already downloaded into his soul. Armor is really good if you're going against somebody with, who's got a bigger sword. But if you never intend to get within sword's distance, armor is not helpful. You need to be light on your feet. David was not planning on fighting Goliath on Goliath's terms. He was planning on fighting Goliath on God's terms. You come to me with sword and shield. As it turns out, big boy, I don't need those things. I come to you in the name of the Lord. All he needed, he had been picking birds out of the air with a slingshot for decades. I don't need to get anywhere near your 11-foot sword length. I just need to be able to move faster than you. By the way, your size is now a problem. Do you see what we're doing here? Why? Because God had... I think, conditioned David to realize that Goliath was not an enemy for Israel. Goliath was God's enemy. All God was looking for was a champion, someone who would go in his name and partner with him to fight the Goliath. This is what um, Paul wants to call to mind as he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might to recognize that your strength comes from personal relationship. This in Christ, in the Lord image language has echoed throughout the entire, entire book. It is important that we recognize that we are joining God in his battle, not asking him to join us in ours. We are joining God in his battle, not asking him to join us in ours. Not all of your enemies are God's enemies. Not all of the people you don't like or loathe or blame are actually the problem that God is interested in solving. So we have to get our, our orientation right to begin with. Then he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Please notice, again, full armor of God. He's going to outline that here in a few minutes using a, a common symbol in the ancient Near East where there was a Roman garrison or fortress of one kind or another throughout virtually every major city. People would recognize the symbols. We'll get to them in a minute. But he wants us to understand it's God's armor, not your armor, not your strategies, not your uh, clever ideas, not what you downloaded from the last seminar you went to or the last conference you attended or the last book you read. It comes from relational connection 
to the Lord. If you are in the Lord, you can be strong in his might. If you're not in the Lord, it doesn't matter what conference you've gone to. Do you see? So put on the armor of God. Put on, put on God's strategy, if you will, because we have an enemy who has schemes. Why does the enemy have schemes? Because he's weak. If you are powerful, you don't need schemes. We have a finite enemy who has limited resources but has incredible cleverness in the assigning of those resources. That's what he's talking about. He's smart. So don't act as if he were stupid. He has schemes. He has strategies. He has plans to take you down. And they rarely will be this full frontal assault. That, in fact, will often be the distraction so that we don't notice the actual strategy that is at play. That's why you got to put on God's armor, not Saul's armor, not your armor, not the armor that's downloaded from the Book of the Month Club, but the armor that comes from God because that will keep you light and flexible in the real battle that's going on. You will notice and understand things in that reality that you don't understand if this is your armor. Do you, do you see? This is one of the things that the garden has tried to do since its inception. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, frankly. Uh, we, we've just tried as hard as we can to, what's God doing? What's God doing? What's God doing? And every once in a while, we'll get distracted with what somebody else is doing. But for the most part, because that screws up and doesn't work in Long Beach, it's like, what's God doing here? What's God doing here? Let's pay attention to that. Put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand. This is a strong word. Take your stand. It has to do, as you know, no surprise, with the stance of the, of the, of the, of the soldier. Um, the image that he's got here is of the cohort model of fighting. You saw it uh, in uh, that movie. Now I can't remember the name of the movie. Russell Crowe. Gladiator. Thank you. Thank you for that. Really like playing password with y'all, but um, so so you, you you know how it worked, right? How how the these these ill-equipped, under-resourced slaves survived the onslaught in the Colosseum, right? In the battle, uh, they they stayed together. They uh, used whatever they had to protect the core. That's the image here. So you have a have a, have a line of soldiers, and it depends on how how much territory you have to hold, how long the line is, but it's essentially a box. And, 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 the, and the, the, the only way that can fail, given the uh, weapons of warfare in the ancient Near East, is if one of the people loses their, their stance. So he says, take your stand, hold still. Take the ground that you've been given, stand on it against these devil's schemes. Why? Because... Our struggle is not, as often as it appears to the contrary, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. So if you make people your primary focus of warfare, the game is already over. You have just swallowed the worm on which is the hook of the devil's schemes. This is really hard for us. 
What are the real enemies? They're against rulers, against authorities. And here Paul is just pulling out, not a thesaurus, he's using the language of spiritual warfare. And by that I don't mean demons under every rock. I mean the fact that we live in a multi-layered universe. The material part of that universe is only one part of it. In this room, I believe there are multiple universes present, including the spiritual universe. There are multiple dimensions represented. If we had eyes to see, my guess is there are angels in this place. If we had eyes to see. He hasn't trusted us with those eyes to see because it would not be long before we're pursuing angels. We have responsibility for this material world and we need to keep in mind that the enemy is not one another. It's these spiritual forces and he uses this language, we'll go into them perhaps later on, but this um, uh, rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. I don't know that it's particularly important that we drill down on each of those except to say this, this panoply of, 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 of resource aligned against us, all spiritual forces. Now that does not mean that they don't work themselves out in systems and in human systems and sometimes in human beings. There are people who have given themselves over to evil. And we need to own that. We need to own that reality. There are such things as evil persons. They, however, are not our enemy. They are objects of our pity and prayerfully our deliverance. When Jesus was attacked by one such person, you remember the story, what did he do? He didn't wail on the guy's head. He set him free. He reclothed him. He gave him his mind back such that that deliverance was so extreme that that guy became the first evangelist on the eastern shore of the Lake of Galilee. That's, that's a pretty significant story. Notice that would not have happened had that guy been Jesus' enemy. Do, do, do you see? And in the moment when people are coming at you screaming, you might think they're the problem, right? And, and, and I'm using extreme examples because I think that's why the Scripture tells us this story. But remember, it, can, it doesn't always come across in these extreme forms. Sometimes it's a roommate. Sometimes it's a husband or wife. Sometimes it's a coworker. Sometimes it's a partner in work. Sometimes it's, 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 it's a neighbor, right? And, and we would be tempted to think, oh, they're the problem. It doesn't mean that there are no problems with people. This is why Paul spends the last half of the book telling us how to get along with one another, right? But let's not, let's not mistake this tension and conflict that we have with individual persons to be the real issue. He says, in the middle of all of this, we have an enemy whose schemes are devoted to taking us down and out, and we ought not get distracted by dehumanizing people to the point that they become our enemies. Please notice, every country in, in, in warfare does this. It dehumanizes the enemy so its soldiers can slay them. 
We did it in the Second World War with the, with the Nazis. We, 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 we did it with the Japanese in the Second World War. We did it with the Koreans in the Korean conflict. We did it with the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War. We do it with the Taliban. We do it now with radical Islamic fundamentalists. And Paul says, yes, there is an embodiment in flesh and blood, but let's be clear, flesh and blood is not our problem. There is a warfare going on behind that. That doesn't mean we ought not sit down at the table. It doesn't mean that we ought not ever go to war. It doesn't mean any of those things necessarily. But it does mean, even in the middle of those kinds of things, don't forget, this is the scheme of someone who's really, really smart, who has limited resources and only needs limited resources because we keep falling for the same shell game time after time after time after time, thinking this time we'll beat it. We have an enemy who is really smart, who is strategically aligned, and one of his schemes is to entice us to treat people as less than people. Can you explain human trafficking in any other way? That's systemic evil. It treats persons as objects. Can you explain the economy of, of the world in any other way? It's how the world goes round by reducing persons to objects. And Paul wants to remind us, the people are not the problem. There is a scheme behind this that dehumanizes persons that the intel here is that the devil's schemes are such that we might be convinced at any given moment that people are our problem. And so we start to take one another out in the battle. You, you, I mean, if you're still on social media, you will have seen this played out, right? Because, because we're convinced somehow that we're right and the other people are not only wrong, but dangerous and have to be taken out by whatever means possible. Please notice what we have done. That disables conversation. It disables nuanced dialogue and thus becomes unhelpful in actually saving the world. We take one another out in the backfield. When I talk about this in pre-marriage counseling, it's like it, I, I try and help people understand, no, when you get married, you are now on the same team heading in the same direction. Please notice the strategy of the enemy relative to marriage is to get you to take each other out in the backfield. Right? Doesn't he do that really well? And now all of a sudden, the team, us, is not moving the ball forward here. We're kneecapping one another in the backfield and wondering why we can't get the ball downfield. Because you're killing one another, that's why. Right? You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but it doesn't matter whose hands last touched the basket. Our team still gets two points. They, basketball doesn't have a backfield, does it? All right. Everybody following along? All right. So... Notice then that the devil's schemes are rarely also readily identified. Namely, they're not usually demonic in nature. The devil seeks 
He's the original terrorist. He, he seeks to cause fear, to kill, to destroy. They are hidden in the systems and structures of brokenness. So what are we to do? We are to put on the full armor of God so that when this day of evil comes, when the enemy finally feels confident enough to show his hand, and I think, frankly, we're in that place in numerous ways, right? Our, our political systems are shown to be the sham that they are. Uh, did you know, for example, that most governments in the world are now moving away from orphan care? That most of the orphan care in the world, can you guess who's doing it? The church. The church. Why? Well, you know why. Because that's what we're supposed to do. That's how change actually comes. So we, the day of evil is coming so that you can, notice, stand your ground. After you have done everything, stand. The goal is to stand firm. You're, by the way, not to take ground. To, t- to keep the ground that has been taken. God is on the move. He will build his church. Our job is to conserve and hold on to the ground that God has taken. And this is what we are invited into. The battle is not in question here, please. Remember, God is already victorious. So we are now in a place where we are moving. You, said, you saw this in the, in the recent battles in Mosul or in, in, in Syria and some of the other places in the world. The, the, the battle is all but decided, but there is door-to-door warfare taking place, and our task is to not lose the ground that God has taken. So how do we do that? We stand firm. Please notice the drumbeat again. How do we do this? We put on, having, having made the determination to stand firm, shoulder to shoulder, front to back, back to back with our, with our brothers in the cohort model, right? And we put on the, 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 the belt of truth, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, feet, sandals, uh, fighting sandals with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and so on. Um, there have been a lot of stuff, there has been a lot of stuff written on, on, on the analogies here or the allegories, the belt of truth and so on and so forth. I don't know that that's exactly what Paul is doing. So it's not gonna be what, what I do. What he's after here is not the belt, but the truth. Not the breastplate, but the righteousness. Not the sandals, but the shalom, the life lived with integrity. Do, do you see? That's what enables you to stand. So I want to spend not, not a whole lot of time talking about each of these particular armaments, but about what he's after here, uh, which is, which is uh, living a life of truth. This is impo- important. To, this is not just truth-telling. This is truth living so that truth told can be heard. Remember here a couple of weeks ago with Megan? What is it, the primary ways that parents exasperate their sons, fathers? I know how I did it. I told my sons to live in ways that I did not myself live. That's exasperating to children. So when we talk about truth... The, the belt, the, 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 the leather apron is really more accurately the uh, uh, image here. 
of truth. That is, that is living with integrity, not, not speaking the truth. Uh, Dallas Willard says, I've used this quote before and it's just haunting me, um, given the nature of our political and religious discourse. But it is hard, he said, to be right and not hurt somebody with it. That's why Paul says, the truth, as important as it is, needs to be led by love. Love is the way we get the right to speak the truth. Does that make sense? So we are invited into that deep reality because otherwise we have the sword of truth and what are we going to do with it? We're going to be like Peter in the garden. We're going to stop lopping, start lopping off ears in Jesus' name. That's not the mission of truth. We are invited into living with integrity in word and deed. Uh, so, 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 so that leather undergarment almost of truth is essential. The breastplate of righteousness uh, that he, he speaks of here is, is, is what you would think. It's not righteousness as in right standing before God. It's righteousness as in, as in right living. Anybody else run across the reality that many people in our world think Christians are hypocrites? Anybody want to guess why they think we're hypocrites? Because we are. And this is why Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Get your act together. Start treating your husband, your wife, your kids with dignity. Start treating your employees like brothers and sisters. Even if they're not, they are. Because they all have the same father. Right? Stop using the word family if you don't intend to live it out. This is righteousness. It's not some kind of floating three inches above the ground spiritual holiness. Righteousness has boots on the ground and dirt under its fingernails. Otherwise, it's useless. Notice the breastplate is the thing that takes the most blows in the infighting in the defensive battle here. So what is it that gives you a place to stand when people are charging you? Well, a lifestyle, a Teflon lifestyle that stuff just slides off. This is Peter's language. Put on the, on, on the, on the, on the sandals, the, the, and he has, uses a particular word here of the, of the, of the uh, fighting sandals that have the, the leather uh, leggings that go up on the shin and that are tied so that there is some moderate protection there. But the, the point is, is not what they're made of. It's, it, the idea is the goal of the sandals is what is to keep you grounded, to keep you standing. And what are they? Gospel of peace, shalom. Don't forget. What's true? In addition to this, take up the shield of faith. This is probably my favorite one uh, because using this cohort model, the word that he uses here for shield is not the uh, uh, forearm uh, shield of, of uh, uh, offensive warfare. It's the two and a half by four foot wooden shield covered by water-soaked leather of the cohort. So it's a defensive shield. It's not an offense for going into battle. It's a defensive shield. And you, 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 get, you get the imagery, right? The shield is used. The guys in the front hold it this way. The guys behind hold it above their heads so that when the enemy wants to terrorize them by dropping flaming arrows, 
into the center of the cohort, into the center of the box, they are extinguished by the water-soaked leather on the shield. It's a brilliant strategy. Put, and and, and, the, and what, 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 what is this? Faith. Stand in the reality of the kingdom come. Stand in the reality of God's um, um, for you-ness. Stand in the reality of who you are in him. Anybody else recognize that the primary way the enemy seeks to, to disrupt us is by getting us off the track of who we are. Identity is essential for standing. So if he can push you off, no, notice now why the, those sandals are so important, right? Why, why keeping track of who you are, st- faith, standing in the reality, not just of who God is, but who you are in Christ, is essential to us extinguishing those flaming, flaming swords, flaming darts, flaming arrows of the evil one. And then he says, uh, take on the helmet of salvation, this, this idea of deliverance, the fact that, that the salvation is not the salvation that we think of if we grew up in an evangelical church in the 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, getting saved. Salvation here has the idea of deliverance and warfare. The, the trumpet sounds and the cavalry rides over the hill and we are saved. We are delivered. That's the image that he's using here. Put on that helmet. God's on your side. God is fighting for you. God is victorious in you. Don't lose track of what is true. And then finally, this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this, again, is not the long sword of offensive warfare. It's the short dagger of uh, defensive um, uh, warfare. So your job... Like Jesus, by the way, notice how he is the exemplar in all of this. How did he wield the sword when under attack by the schemes of the devil in the desert? Remember? He used the word of God. That was his defensive mechanism. So the more of the scriptures you memorize, the more of the scriptures you internalize, the more of the scriptures you live in, the the sharper the sword and the greater your capacity uh, in the in the close infighting that occurs, otherwise we 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 will be be um, um, uh, subject to to failure. So what is all this calling us to? We got to recognize our true enemy. We've got to stick together. Infighting will destroy us faster than any external attack. We've got to remember to hold the ground that God has taken for us. Work, home, neighborhood, relationships, whatever they are, we've got to remember those. I can't think of a better way to bring focused closure to this than by participating in one of these thin space moments of sacrament. We've already done it in the table of the Lord. In a few moments, we will do it in the waters of baptism. Some of you sitting here today may have decided, you know what? I get what's going on in my life. I need to realign myself to Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.
12 